Welcome back to the Tapes Archive podcast, where we release interviews that have never been heard before. In this episode, we have the Red Rocker himself, Sammy Hagar. At the time of this interview in 1991, Hagar was 44 years old and was promoting Van Halen's upcoming concert at Deer Creek Music Center. In the interview, Hagar talks about his experience with UFOs, the secret to Van Halen, his father's death, and his advice for Axl Rose. As always, we have music critic Mark Allen at the helm conducting the interview. One last thing before we get to the interview, the Tapes Archive podcast is a proud member of Osiris Media, a global community connecting passionate fans with podcasts and experiences about artists and topics you love. Thanks for tuning in, and now it's time to open the vault. I'm good. I mean, I'm eating pretzels, but I'll stop now. Oh, well, keep continuing pretzels. That's okay. No, you'll probably get half the stuff I say wrong to begin with. I will? No, I'm joking. <laughs> Uh, Sammy, we got, aren't you? <laughs> we, we got it all on tape, Sammy. We don't we don't mess around with these quotes. We don't no, sit here and type and do that kind of crap. Uh, here's what I want to know. I want to know, when are you going to dive off the stage for looking for a camera, criticize the security force, and storm off in a tizzy? Oh, probably when my first album, you know, sells four or five million records. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, you know. I don't know, I think Nugent had it right. When he said Nugent said it right. No, no, what was that? Well, he said that if he was that ugly, you wouldn't want anybody taking a picture of him. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, I got nothing to say about it. You know, everybody's got their own trip. The music should be all you really worry about. Well, it just seems like you guys are are certainly on the same level of success, if not greater than those guys. And they don't seem to have any idea how to enjoy it. And you guys always seem to be enjoying yourself. You know, I think that's the whole thing. It's like uh, you got to enjoy your, yourself first and what you're doing, and then just everything around you just kind of falls into place. But if you're miserable, you're miserable in any situation. Mm-hmm. I don't care how much money you have. If you're miserable, you're miserable. So maybe that's it. I don't know. I could rag on them all day because it does just kind of make me sick because the fans are the ones who end up getting burned. They're still going to make their money. The show's was over and it's done. And they walk away, and the fans are the ones that get burned because then somebody else comes to town in that market. The security is going to be all pissed off. They're going to be uptight, and the fans are going to suffer. They're going to they're going to make them hold them back, you know, more. It's not it's just not going to be as much fun for the next two or three months for other bands that come through because guns went out there and fucked up. And that's the only part that pisses me off. Other than that, I don't give a shit what those guys or anybody else does. <laughs> Okay. There, there was all this talk for a while that rock was dead, that the charts were dominated by all these dance divas and rap acts, and uh, I guess that really occurred most heavily while you were probably putting the finishing touches on the new album. <laughs> yeah. were, you, were you hearing all that talk, and were you anticipating blowing all that other stuff off the charts? Sure when the was, album came? man. I mean, I was looking so forward to it. Uh, it's like I'm just... We were there were times we'd sit back, you know, hearing what we were doing, knowing that in our hearts that it was great. And that's not an ego rap, that's like honest. We were real proud of this shit. And we were just going, Yeah, you know, sit there and watch M T V and all that stuff and you're going, Boy, can't wait to blast them fuckers out with this shit. <laughs> I mean it really was. It was almost like we were out there loading our, our guns up, getting our ammunition ready so that we could just Hit them. But, you know, our fans have always been so true for us. It's like we don't have to release singles. We don't have to do anything. And not because we're so goddamn great. It's because our fans are so great that we know that they're going to be there. So they trust us completely. We don't have to have a hit single 
or, or cop out and make some dance music that crosses over into clubs or something to in order for to hook the people into buying our records. Yeah, or obviously even rush into making a record. Yeah, you didn't yeah. Yeah, certainly didn't have to rush to make this. But new. that was for our fans. That wasn't for our leisure. And that's why our fans are there, I guess, because they know they can trust us. That we're going to go in and we're going to do a great show. If we're going to come out on stage and sell them a ticket, they're going to get their money's worth and more. If we make a record, they're going to get their money's worth and more. It's not going to be just two or three hit songs on it and then the rest a bunch of bullshit. So it's really our fans that have put us in this position. And we just knew they'd be there. When we released this record, it was like, fuck yeah, they're going to be there. We've never ripped them off. You know, and we ain't going to, so they're going to be there. And so all these, these uh, this bullshit that's been out there, a lot of it, we were just really, you know, the old army was going to come to the rescue. The infantry was going to come in <laughs> and put the album, uh, you know, debut at number one. Whatever. Yeah. Now, was this stuff also playing on your mind when you were writing the songs? Fuck no. No? We don't plan anything for that. Huh. that that's the secret to Van Halen is we just go in and do. But what we do is taken very seriously. Not to the point where we overwork it, but seriously to the point to where we know that if it's not good, out. And we just go in there and please ourselves. It's like really self-indulgent in a way, but with a little bit of a higher, I don't know, it's hard to explain, a little bit of a higher consciousness, so, of, hey, this isn't good enough. We're just not going to go take a big piss and say, here you go, drink this. We're going to really make sure it's a good piss. <laughs> <laughs> oh, getting these quotes in the paper is going to be fun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's what I meant when I first talked. I said, you know, half the shit I said ain't going to be right anyway, so I might as well be eating fucking goldfish of pretzels, you know. Uh -huh. <laughs> oh, I thought, thought maybe that was uh, what Man on a Mission might be about, that you were, you know, you felt on a mission to uh, blow out all these other bands. No, you know, there, there's actually, believe it or not, now, now you can get some stuff you Lyrically, there is a concept to this album. Even the cheesy songs, which people could say, "Oh, that's just about a pussy." Oh no, way, you can't put that. But like a song like "Pound Cake," where you know people might think it's just a sexual thing. There, it is tied into a concept, and whether someone agrees with it or not, or whatever. But you know, the dream is over is basically the concept about, and it's not a negative. It's like the dream is over, but you know, dream another dream. There's to stop believing in this old time crap and there's changes have to be made and so forth. And uh, judgment day is ba basically what I'm talking about. Is that, that isn't my attitude. I think that's the attitude of a lot of people in the, in the world today. Everyone's putting it off. Everyone's just going for what they do. Oh, what's in it for me? And all that consciousness has just got to change. And it's time to wake up. So a song like Man on a Mission is about once you know what you want, and I'm talking sexually, like pound cake, it's like I'm more attracted to a down-home, homegrown woman than I am to some designer stuff. And it's, to me, there's, it's more beautiful to see things kind of in the natch. I want to know what I'm eating. <laughs> you know what yeah. I mean? Like pound cake is what I'm saying. is like a simple, you know what you got. And so that's uh, the, the parallel there. And that man on a mission is basically once you see it, the pound cake, and you know it, and once you know what you want, then you're a man on a mission. Then you got a mission. You can go get it. Boom. Done. Nothing can distract you. If you don't know what you want, then you're not a man on a mission. You're a lost dog. <laughs> you're out there looking, oh, maybe I want that. Oh, maybe I want that. Oh, maybe I should try this. Maybe I should try that. And that's the way I see people on the planet. That's the way I see everything. Priorities are all screwed up. And so basically that's what the album is about. Even Spankline, it's about that censorship. People trying to keep a record off the market that says fuck in it putting a sticker on it, but yet you can sit home with your family 
and be watching a family TV show, ESPN Sports, whatever, and bang, call up this number, and this lady will tell you what you want to know, you know, and give you what you want right over the phone. And to me, that blows my mind. And so that's really, it's wake up. Come on, people. It's like, you want to go, I want to start running around the street, grabbing people by the neck and shaking them and say, wake up, you son of a bitch, you know? Okay, but the dream that you're talking about, the dream that's over, which dream are we talking about here? I'm talking about kind of the American dream. Mm -hmm. All the promises, they've all been raped. You can't trust a lot of people. And I'm not not anti-American. I'm very pro-American. This is a very pro-American statement. I'm saying the jive bullshit that we've been fed, that, hey, you can go out. If you just go to school, get a good education, and if you do everything this way and that way, you can have this bullshit. People have got around, around it completely now. You know, the stock market thing, the all this crap. Oh, that's success. Uh, in order to be a good American, you have to be successful. You have to own your house, and you have to have a couple cars in the garage, and, and dress nice, and be a yuppie family, and then, then you're okay. Bullshit. Those people are just as bad as the crack dealers in the street sometimes because they're the reason that the real estate prices go up and so forth. And the you know the the developers and all these guys that come. I live at the beach here, right? It's a wonderful life. Everything's great. Some assholes trying to build a house on my beach, right dead in front of my house on the beach where people come and lay. Not one house, seventeen houses across this beach. And the point is, okay, I live in a wonderful neighborhood and all rich people live here and it's a wonderful life. And this guy starving in the streets fine but those people that are starving in the streets are allowed to walk down and lay on my beach and enjoy it but this asshole's trying to put up houses there and make 17 million dollar profit and no one can lay on the beach and my kid has to sit here and look at the house all right it's a tough life great it's bullshit it's bad for the environment too the guy's gonna be flushing his sewage into the ocean and there's no beach there then and to me you know that's wake up the dream is over man people have abused it they've raped it and the rape in the country, and so okay, it's over. Okay, so you're telling people that. Well, you, what do you what are you telling them to do then, or what do you suggest they do? Just kind of wake up to the environment and don't get sucked in by the whole thing, and take out your trash or recycle your trash or whatever. I haven't I haven't come up with all the answers. I'm just kind of painting the picture. Because you just want people to ask the questions. Yeah, exactly. Because I'm not. I don't believe rock has an artist whether you're a painter a poet or anything I don't believe that you should sit there and say this is the way to go do this and do that there's way too much responsibility to that I wouldn't want to be in that position because I'm not sure I'm right all the time but what you can do is what the artist's job is I think is to paint the picture just say here's the way I see it is there any truth to this can you relate you know can you help me can you tell me where what I'm seeing is wrong and you know you know what I'm saying it's like I think we just tell the world whether it's be radio through the radio through MTV what you see because maybe some of these people are just doing it and they don't see it so we're, you know we're fortunate enough to be able to have time to step back a lot of times uh, live a kind of a eccentric weird life and sometimes you get little glimpses of things that maybe you can't see if you're not there and that's I think that's the artist's job and that's all we're responsible for not changing the world but kind of painting it as we see it and then therefore those that are intelligent enough and have the insight and the answers to make the changes maybe they'll see it through what we see and therefore make the changes because we can't go out there and make changes it's stupid it'd be like revolutions and shit you know I don't, I'm not looking for no revolution I just want to little, wake people up a little bit to a little bit higher consciousness about this stuff and that's about as far as it is other than that I just want to have some fun and have people have fun to the music that's why there's all these double meanings to pound cake and that's why I, I intentionally try to put 
a little humor in it as well. Otherwise, and then it's no fun. Then it becomes this real serious. Then I'm Joan Baez all of a sudden, you know. <laughs> And for Christ's sakes, I don't want to see that either. That's depressing. You don't want to depress the people. You want to wake them up, make them smile, and say, shit, man, I'm happy now. So anyway, it's about serious as it goes. But there is an asshole trying to build a house on my beach. That's, uh, whereabouts do you, I mean, can you tell me where you live or roughly where you live? It's just in, you know, on the L.A. coast. Uh, right on the beach? I mean, right yeah. where the waves roll up to the... Yeah, on big stilts so that the guy's got to get a boat half the time to get out of his pad. I mean, these guys, they'll build it. They'll build a house anywhere to make a buck. It blows my mind. I'm thinking, well, why don't you, you know, I'll let you do it on my front lawn. But please, you know, don't take the beach away from me and my kids and the people from the valley that drive over here. Thank God there's a beach down there. I mean, they'll, they'll just, pretty. it's like the oil rigs that got to be out there in the middle of the ocean. You know, come on. You know, there's plenty of oil. Go drill it somewhere else. Well, who owns the beach? Well, some guy owns it. And, really? I yeah. didn't know anybody could own the beach. Well, That's kind yeah. of, I guess in California. Well, here's the deal. Exactly. There used to be a road there, and it got washed out about five times. So they, the road's gone. So now it's this beach. And... But I guess someone owned it. Uh, it's, it's hard to explain. That's why the government, I mean, the, the Coast Commissioner, when he's trying to fight him. He's trying to fight the Coast Commissioner. saying you can't put houses here. For Christ's sake, it's dangerous. And, and there's a beach here. People should be able to live on this beach. But it's, I mean, no, abuse beach. It's a private beach, but it's open to the public. But I mean, it's privately owned. For some reason, it's two-mile stretch. And some asshole is just, he's fighting it and fighting it and fighting it. He spent millions of dollars trying to develop it. Because it's worth so much money. I mean, these, to have a house right on the beach, of course, everyone say wonderful, but they don't realize how stupid it would be. The guy's going to end up being sued. But that's why I'm saying it's judgment day. He knows he's wrong, and he knows he's doing everything bad for not only the environment, but for the people that are going to buy the house. Is going to be ripped. they'll sell the house for three or four million bucks, and they, they'll be ripped off to the bone because their house will be in the ocean about every four years. So. Because there's a big, you know, when they have high tide, it comes right up to my gate. <laughs> I'm sorry, you know. It's like anything in front of my gate is going to get washed away. Yeah, it sounds dangerous. I mean, it who would want to buy a house like that? But there, there's, everyone's putting it off to judgment day. It's the whole thing. Everyone's taking chances. It's a piss poor way to do things, but it's because everyone's desperate, you know, or else they're greedy. One or the other, you're either desperate. The crack dealers are desperate. You know, the kids in the street that are robbing stores, they're, they're going, well, I know I shouldn't be doing this, but hey. I gotta survive, and you know I gotta take a ch I gotta take my chances. So you go and you blow somebody away, and you get caught, and you go, hey, fuck. Well, I got caught, but it's all I had. And these guys are going, hey, I'm greedy, man. I need another five million bucks because my rent's due, because my house, I spent twelve million dollars on my house, and I can't, you know, I couldn't afford it, and I gotta, I gotta pay for this and pay for that, and so I, I, I gotta build these houses. I need seven million bucks quick. You know? <laughs> I mean, it's like, that's, it's the consciousness, you know? That's I'm pissed off. I'm going to go on stage and do a hell of a show and have so goddamn much fun. <laughs> it's like my only relief, like comic relief, to go on stage and kick it out and act like everything's wonderful. Are your neighbors fighting this as well? Oh, yeah. The oh, whole goddamn good. neighborhood's up and on. The Coastal Commission is fighting it. I mean, these guys, they're, he's a real big-time developer. He's got a lot of political clout. He's actually, he looks like he might be going to get it done. I mean, I don't know, you know. Man, maybe you should put on a concert right next to his house or something like that. Hey, if there's any houses out front, we'll be putting on concerts on the beach constantly while they're out there trying to work. <laughs> we'll go down and play for free for the construction workers, man. And, and they're telling, hey, bring your family down. Shit, we'll play for you guys, you know. <laughs> Nothing will get done. All right, I wanted to ask you a few of the Van Halen-related things. Oh, yeah. <laughs>
when uh, when did you know? Was there a, was there a specific instance that you knew that the fans accepted you as the front man of Van Halen? Mm, yeah, the first show. Really? Yeah. So from the first time, I mean, there was never any feeling like uh, you know they missed David Lee Roth or anything like that. Well, I don't know if they did or not, but they didn't show it. And they showed nothing but respect and warmth to me. I mean, we walked down on stage in Shreveport, Louisiana, and there's a town I had never headlined solo artist. There's maybe five towns in America I never headlined as a solo artist because of lack of business or lack of record sales. We said we don't want to chance it, right? Okay. So we started the 5150 tour in Shreveport, and I said, "Oh, this is wonderful." You know, I was really nervous. It was sold out first hour, whatever. And we walked down on stage, and there were probably 50 banners in the in the audience that said Van Hagar, the Red Rocker, Van Halen, we love you, or you know Dave sucks. You know, there were just it was so unbelievable. And, and we walked down on stage, and they fucking busted the barricade down. And I just said, well, shit, let's go, you know. And I, you know, I'm a pretty confident human being anyway. I'm not like a real insecure kind of guy. Do I walk down on stage a little shy? Yeah. And, it was it was wonderful. I haven't had one single bad incident. And then the next thing that kind of told me what was happening was when 5150, the third week, went to number one. And Van Halen never had a number one record. They had a number two record. Yeah. <laughs> but 1984 was a very big record for them. So coming off a record that big and so forth. And that, that was it. You know, the only people that ever complained about it were just some <laughs> critics, to be honest with you. You know, every now and then, it, about 30, 40% of them would come to the show and say, you know, they'd bring up, oh, you know, well, Sammy was like this, but, you know, Dave did this. You know, they would try to compare us. And uh, I don't think the fans were really trying to compare us. I think they saw just it was just different. It was new. The fans that liked Dave, they split. I don't believe they were there. You know, I had my own fans. I was selling out Coliseums myself, and then Van Halen selling out Coliseums. You had those two together. I just thought we just, well, as far as I'm concerned, we just had twice the people, or at least the amount of people that left that were disappointed with me in the band. I think my fans kind of filled a bigger hole than they left, and uh, I'm sure some of my fans were disappointed. I got fan letters that disappointed for me joining the band too. You know, and now. I mean, obviously, seeing what's happened with Dave, I think it's obvious. Yeah, he needs you more than you need him. So. <laughs> we don't need him. No, I know you don't need him. Well, <laughs> uh, but, you know, the point is, is that I think it's just, it's a kind of cut and dried now. I, I think uh, the truth of the matter has just, it just serviced. I mean, this yeah. is, we've had three number one albums in a row. And I, I think we've, it's just an old issue now. I, I don't think it's, it's there anymore. Ten more years from now, Maybe they should do a reunion. I don't know. But uh, right now, I think if I split and Dave came back, my, my gut feeling is it would be it would hurt the band. First of all, the band would never do it. If I left this band, Dave would not be the guy who came in. It's, there's not a happy mutual uh, thing going on there. So, And second of all, these guys would have to, they would have to cut my neck and throw me out of the band. <laughs> so it's not... That isn't even an issue. Yeah. Okay. It's, well, it's, then we leave it alone. <laughs> yeah, it's really it's really uh, going good within the band. We we kind of have more than a band going with us. We are actually friends. And from the day I first walked into this situation and played with these guys, we all just kind of smiled and warmed up. It was like, hey, this is fucking great. We're the same kind of people. We get along. We talk about music. 
uh, old albums and old Led Zeppelin tune, an old Cream tune, and it's always the same song that we all love. And it just, it's unbelievable. You know, Eddie lives right next door to me. It's, it's his beach as well. It's the same thing. We, we're just, we're friends. You know, you don't live next door to somebody you hate. It's a real, real special situation, and outside people don't even know. Because you hear the music, and if you're really sensitive, maybe you can hear that there is a marriage there. If you, some people just take it as, oh, it's a great band, everything's good. But it goes so far beyond that, you can't even imagine how close we are as people. There's a, a reference book I use, the Encyclopedia of Pop, Rock, and Soul, and it has a, a long and interesting uh, entry on you. And it starts out by saying, there are more than a few contradictions between the public and private faces of Sammy Hagar. On stage, thrashing out red-hot licks while he screams out raw-edged rock lyrics and makes no holds-barred comments between numbers, he seems the personification of the cruising and boozing blue-collar town he grew up in. Off stage, he is typically relaxed and reflective, enjoying detailed discussions of favorite topics such as astronomy and the reality or non-reality of UFOs. Is that, uh, is that you? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Damn, who was this asshole that nailed me? I'll kill him. <laughs> <laughs> no, really, someone wrote that, huh? Yeah. Well, I, if I... God, you know, I, I pretty much say that's about as accurate as I can think of myself. I'm not a real, you know, kind of person that sits around and thinks a lot about myself. But God, when you was reading that, I'm going, if you wouldn't have said my name, I would have said, shit, that sounds like me. <laughs> <laughs> so, I don't know. Yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, all right. So, uh, are there UFOs or not? Oh, yes. Yeah? Uh, yes. My latest book I'm reading now is called Watchers. And uh, it's kind of the latest details of some people. Betty Anderson's case. It's, uh, it's scary. I wrote a song called Someone Out There. It's scary to me to think that we're the only people in this whole big universe. If you know anything about astronomy, space, and time, how big everything is, how minute this planet is, and how unsophisticated our sun and so forth and our little solar system is, to think that we are the only ones, that scares the shit out of me. <laughs> you know what I mean? That means there's no God or nothing. So I'd, I'd rather believe in God and uh, uh, hope, that, hope that we're not just out here on our own, because if that's the case, then fuck it. I might as well have a real good time. <laughs> if there's no dues to pay, if there's no judgment day, shit, you know, I'll join the family, you know. Of course, the, uh, you know, the, the line that everybody always says is, well, you know, how come UFOs always land in, like, you know, a farmer with a 32 IQ's backyard? How come they never uh, land in the middle of Manhattan? Well, they do. They've been, there's a classic case, uh, John Leonard, of all people, one of the people that saw it in 1967 uh, or something like that. Uh, Seven UFOs that were spotted right downtown New York in the air. They were doing all these acrobatics and shit. Uh, then they just boom, disappeared. And there was like 50 people in one group on one street corner where were all questioned about it or something. And it's, it's it's documented in Project Blue Book. You can you can look it up the Heineck book. And there's there's been there's been many cases in a lot of cities. But it, for one thing, in a city where people are crazed and busy and shit. A lot of things happen you don't see. And the skies are pretty funky, too. <laughs> but uh, it's like out in a farm where there's a lot, it's a lot less, uh, you know, these guys don't want to have some cat come out and blow their brains out and shit. Or have the police come chasing them or whatever. I mean, it's, these guys, they're probably just, there's three different kinds, I think. I mean, I don't have all the answers, but I believe there's three different kinds. One is a manifestation of your brain. You'll look up and you'll see something only because your brain just projects it, almost like a hologram. It's almost like your, your brain's a projector all of a sudden. It's usually taking things in, but your eyes can also, there's, there's imaginary ones, okay? Mm -hmm. But there are real to some people. Then there are robots that some people like us in the space, uh, space shuttle with 
computers and so forth. And well, some people, I think they actually have robots that have functions, R2-D2 kind of characters, only, you know, that's a little bit far-fetched, but scientific machinery that can, like computers that come down and make all these uh, tests, you know, they get Earth samples, just like we go to the moon and get a scoop of Earth, you know. Mm -hmm. They come down here and they cut somebody's goddamn dick off, you know, and they want to look <laughs> at it, take it up, and see what's going on, you know. <laughs> and then there are real creatures like us. But other type creatures, I don't know, they could be ants, you know, they could be anything, depending upon the environment. They come from other dimensions, uh, other, not our planets and our solar system, other worlds. And uh, they come down here, and they are real curious little creatures, and they are much more sophisticated in order to be able to come here. And they visit people, and they experiment. They grab guys like me, and they just fucking, just with a... You know, instant little thing, boom, you know, your memory goes, you lose time, and until you're hypnotized, you don't even know what happened. It might have happened to you. It's happened to me before. It has. Oh, yes, it has. Okay, well, what happened? I don't know exactly, but it happened. Do you know when it happened? Yeah, in 1967. 1967, okay. And, and uh, it was like a computer situation. I was kind of plugged into, and it was like uh, either feeding me information, you know, as if you took a computer and you transfer some from one disk to another. So tell me, where where are you and what... You I'm, know. I'm in my house in Fontana, California. Okay. And I'm asleep. Okay. In the night. And all of a sudden, I felt like, I almost felt like there was this cord in, in me, in my head, and it went up on this mountaintop behind where I live. It was, in a, you know, like a, an electrical connection. I'm calling it a cord. Nothing makes sense. It was in dream state. It's like, what, what the fuck? Wait a minute. You know what I mean? It's like trying to explain it. You're going, well, it was like a cord was coming out of me. You know, I was plugged into. Okay, and it was connected to these three creatures, which I can't even explain what they look like, but when I sort of think it, you can just sort of see them as almost like just a glowing being. It's like in, in E.T. of all things. No, I'm I, I prelude to the landing. No, God damn it. The, uh, the movie Heineck was in uh, uh, Close Encounter. Almost creatures have kind of glowed like that, okay? And they said in their own way, there was no speaking. They were far away. They were a mile away. They're going, he's waking up. And they yelled out a, num a numerical system, like a, a code that was my code. None of the numbers were in from our numerical system. I can't even tell you what they were, but they were numbers. And all of a sudden, boom, it just went zap. And I opened my eyes. My room was completely white. It was just light as, as if the brightest light in the world was in there. I couldn't move my arms or anything. Just my eyes were open. And then, bang, my eyes closed. I went back to sleep. Woke up the next day, remembered the whole thing. And there it was. It, it was not a dream. <laughs> you know what I mean? Did you report it? Hell no. No. My wife. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, your wife uh, just slept through this whole thing? Yeah, yeah. totally. Wow. Okay. So, but I've read, ever since then, I have had this intense curiosity about astronomy and everything. I mean, I, I would go into a bookstore and I'd pick up a book and I would open up a chapter about UFOs and bang, somebody had the same type of experience. Exactly. I mean, like, I'm going, shit, this, this is me talking. So, just things like that. It, it set me on a, on a mission <laughs> and uh, for a long time, and now I'm kind of over it because it just I take it for granted. It didn't scare me. I wasn't scared. I'm not scared at all. I, I sit up nights, I go out and stay up all night wishing that it, I could see one, that it would happen, that they'd come and get me and, and explain everything to me. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm like out there making myself available to them. And then another time in the middle of the night, one the creature was outside my window, and I, I was meditating. 
and I was saying, I was meditating, trying to make contact mm-hmm. in my head. I mean, I do this to people think, you may think I'm crazy, but I'm, I'm not crazy. <laughs> and I go, well, wait a minute, I am crazy. <laughs> but I looked, and then all of a sudden, it was there out my window, and I was afraid to look. The first time I got scared, and I wouldn't roll over and look. And I could see the same thing. It was like my room was kind of glowing, a tinge, you know. Okay. So the first thing that happened was in 1967? Yeah. You were, so you were like 19? I'm 43. I was probably 20. I just got married. Just got married. Okay. Wow. Okay. I've been married for since the same person. That's amazing, huh? Yeah, that's great. <laughs> so even, I'm not totally crazy. No, no. But I mean, <laughs> that, that's pretty incredible, given your line of work to have been married for you know 24 years yep. or something like that. That's that's incredible. A couple other things. I'll let you go. Uh, I, I wanted to ask you about one other thing in this uh, entry uh, in this encyclopedia, and it. it the way it describes your life, I mean, you've, you've faced some, uh, faced a childhood that, you know, not a lot of people would seem to envy, and I'm wondering if, if that makes you more conservative, like, like, uh, are you the kind of person who thinks uh, that people should pick themselves up by their bootstraps, or does it make you more sympathetic to people? Well, it's really crazy, because I'm so adamant that each man take care of himself, but everyone needs compassion or a reason or something to get them to do it. I think the whole key to uh, taking a person is from that's down and out and getting them out of that is hope. You give them hope somehow. Whether it be, it depends on what they need. If it's a person that's down and out because they've been mistreated by mankind and because they've been fucked over by their loved ones and everything, then you got to show them love and prove that it's it's worthy. If it's a person that's been just down and out because it's a racist thing and so forth, you, you have to you have to give them hope that it's, there's going to be a change, you know, that there's light at the end of the telephone. Without that, there's nothing. And that's where the belief in God comes in. And I'm not religious at all. I'm not a Christian, you know, none of these things. But you have to believe in something. And that's the importance of it. Whether or not it's even true, I'd rather think that maybe, even if it wasn't true, that I may become like the Pope. And who knows? He may know something we don't know, but maybe he's just saying, look, mankind needs us. And then you give them all that, and then they'll grab themselves and lift themselves up by their bootstraps and go out and start doing it. But without some kind of hope, some kind of compassion from another man, uh, they won't have it. And I'm so sympathetic to people that are down, because I have been down. father died in a park as an alcoholic at 56 years old. And bum, a derelict in the streets my father, you know. And he never got to see what I've done, or he never got to see me as a man. And... I'm real sympathetic to uh, anybody that's down. I can't take it, man. It's like it, uh, I got too soft of a heart for it. But at the same time, you can't just give to people. Like if a guy's a drug addict, and he's, he's hurting, he needs he needs a fix. So you give him money and let him go get it again. No, you give him help and you, you give him insight and you give him inspiration and you give him some love or something. But you don't just hand people money and you don't just take care of people because then they'll want you to take care of them forever. So they've got to grab their own bootstraps. Yeah, I wonder if, if, if uh, you know, given, like, what everybody's talking about with Clarence Thomas, he apparently grew up a very poor child and picked himself up by his bootstraps and, you know, became now a Supreme Court nominee, but he doesn't seem to have a lot of sympathy for uh, others who, you know, face the same sort of uh, of life. Well, maybe he, he, he had to do it too too much the hard way. He, maybe he never got a break. Yeah. You know, he figures, he, he even though where he is, Maybe he's a little bitter about it. Maybe he figures he had to break his ass, and so you got to break your ass. I don't. I've had a real, real soft life. Considered the hard edge that it started. I've been an artist my whole life, and I've been so so gifted, you might say, that I was able to do all this stuff. I just, fuck, man. 
I'm happy about it. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, maybe he just wasn't a better guy. I've seen guys like that, too. It's like, you know, the old fathers that worked their ass off in the steel mill their whole life. My father did, but he, he got tired of 200 at about 40 and started, became a drunk and then um, killed himself, you know, you might say. But, but the guys that did it and stayed through and raised their kids, fucking hiring their kids a lot of times. Look what I had to do. You know, the old, I walked five miles in a snow routine, so you're going to walk at least four. You know? <laughs> I don't believe in that. Tell me about the show. What are people going to see? And uh, hard rock and roll show they've ever seen in their goddamn life. <laughs> With all this fire and that's it. You're just this is just me. <laughs> that has yeah. all these problems <laughs> that I'm going to go out on stage and just you know let them all out from you know. And I, I don't mean laying trips. I never did that on stage. No. I would never preach anything unless I just something really bugged me at the moment. I don't take my problems out there. I get rid of my problems out there. So they're going to see a long, long show. We haven't played in so long. We've got so many records now. You know, we're doing going all the way back to the first Van Halen record, some of the stuff. Mm-hmm. We're going uh, some of my solo stuff. We all still do our solo sections in the show, and uh, which is really special. And, Are you doing Red? Oh, fuck, I don't know. <laughs> I got so many... Uh, I make my own clothing now, you know, Red Rocker clothing, and it's kind of sports leisure clothing. It's what I, I've, I've invented a, uh, a line of clothes that I can do anything in. I can sleep in them. I can go to eat in them. I can go out on stage in them. You know, it's like I don't have to ever change my clothes now for any event. It saves so much time and so much decision. You know, you look in your closet and you're going, oh, gee, Gianni Versace, you know, Yoshi Yamamoto, what am I going to wear today, you know? Mm-hmm. I go in there and go, I'm the Red Rocker. Bam. <laughs> I'm in. I'm solid. <laughs> now the show's incredible. We haven't we don't work we haven't worked out a show per se. The band the show happens mm-hmm. if we don't work it out. You know what I mean? Yeah. So we just work out the songs. But the lights and everything, there's a lot of new techniques and a lot of new things. We have these new spotlights from the back of the stage that have been used maybe twice and they've only been on big outdoor shows, the Stones used them. They're so powerful that people are gonna get a good look at us. <laughs> <laughs> And, and we're gonna walk around with this scorched hair on the back of our heads, but uh, it's 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 pretty intense. We, you know, Van Halen's never skimpy. How long will you be on stage? Do you know? Between two and three hours. Wow. You know, I mean, that's the other thing. You you never know. The songs might be twice as fast, but at rehearsal, they're over two. It's over two hours, and I'm not even talking in between songs. You know? yeah. And once I start getting long winded, <laughs> I'll say about anything to anybody. You know, and. Uh, Shit, I don't know. That could add another forty-five minutes. And, Are uh, you taking an opening act out with you? Yeah, Alice in Chains. Oh, okay. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah we won't do it by ourselves. You know, everyone's saying evening with, evening with. Bullshit. Nowadays, as good as we are, it's still. I think it's not as good a value. I'm always for, hey, man, give the people as much as you can. There's a time limit, which really makes it difficult for us. We, you know, our management, everyone's saying, do an evening with, and it'll save us about, you know, 100,000 bucks a night or whatever because of the overtime and, you know, after a certain, you go play too long and then all of a sudden, you know, all the stagehands get, you know, paid a whole other day. Make a long story short, you know, it does cost a lot of money after a certain hour. And I, I don't believe in that, man. I say too bad, you know. Yeah, are you playing Everybody Wants Some? Uh, no. No? Oh, damn. I mean, I, I think that should be the national anthem. Oh, I, yeah, yeah I, I agree with it. There's some songs that aren't me. And I hate to give anything away. And it, as a matter of fact, just please don't print this. Okay. But we're playing Jump. 
Oh. And it's never been me. And I never would play jump before because I don't, lyrically, I didn't like it. But we put it in a different key because it sounds too low. You know, it's like, I get up and everybody gets me down. When I'm saying, that's the way it is, you know. Yeah. So I can't stand to sing that low. So we put it in a different key. We've reworked it. And it's great. And uh, but everybody wants them. Didn't make the cut. Well, the band we rehearse a lot of the tunes, and we find out which ones fit, which ones I, I I feel good singing, which ones the band plays best, and everybody wants them. Wasn't in there. Whenever I hear that song, I think, damn, that should be the national anthem. It is a know. cool song, man. Except for, you know all the talking in there. You know. No, yeah, you know, I mean, you don't need that bullshit. But just well, see, I can't, I can't, I can't go out there and, and do somebody else's rap. But just too, I could sing somebody else's stuff. That's difficult enough sometimes because I don't believe in maybe what it's. What it is. But to sit there and do somebody else's rap is tough. Okay. That's a tough one. Last question. Is music better or worse today than when you started? And I don't mean your music. I mean music in general. Uh, in general, I think yeah. it's better. Why? Because I think it's gotten... There's better musicians and there's better production and all that stuff. Now, I'm not saying all music. The only element that I don't like as well is the... The fact that there's so much contrived music that it's being rehashed so much and so many people know what makes a hit. There's formula writing, what I call the L.A. songwriters that write for the bands that have the hits. I hate. It sucks. And most dance music that is just contrived, taking a beat and just fucking... It, to me, stinks most of it. I can't stand that stuff because it's just so pre. It reminds me of disco. It's like just this prefabricated shit that just... It's just too... too uh, too prefabricated, too contrived. But to, to where older music when I first started wasn't like that. There, there were the pop bands, but then there were so many, you know, Deep Purple and Zeppelin and all these bands, Black Sabbath and, you know, Montrose, these kind of bands that just that were not contrived bands, you know, they just went out. But, but there's still a lot of that now. I mean, you still got Metallica and you still got uh, Anthrax, you know, and, and these Faith No More. You got a lot of cool bands out there right now. I think music's great. That's not necessarily pop radio <laughs> or MTV but music is great anything else you want people to know yeah that this is the baddest motherfucking band in the goddamn world but they already know it but for those that don't <laughs> <laughs> it is man it is well it was fun to talk to you and okay. uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you well, Mark come on backstage man. okay thanks man All right. take care bye bye Hey, thanks for listening to the Tapes Archive podcast. Please remember you can always find more information about the show and the individual episodes at our website, thetapesarchive.com. Until next time, the vault is closed.